don't know if you've been working on your New Year's resolutions, if you've got a few written down, or whether you kind of have an aversion to that and purposefully don't do that. But in any event, at the start of a new year, however you consider it, we always think of ways that we can improve or grow. Top 10 list of New Year's resolutions in our country, what typically pops tops the list is exercise as number one, diet as number two, getting organized, maybe number three, number four, maybe learn a new skill, things like that. Over the last year or so, there's been increased attention to, you know, mental health uh, New Year's resolutions, just going easy on yourself, being compassionate to yourself, even forgiving of yourself. It's a wise counsel given the stress and the strain that we've been under over the last couple of years. But let, let me take a step back from that and say, let's consider making a goal, making it not a goal to reach, but a goal to rest in. That we're not doing to get the life we want, but rather we're doing because Jesus has granted us true life. There's really no better way to start a new year than to refresh our minds and cherish in our hearts the significance and wonder of Jesus anew. To aim to deepen that this year because it undergirds everything else, whatever circumstance or difficulty we navigate. And so the passage we're looking at today, I just love it. It's, it's not exactly one of Luke's birth narratives, but it's transitioning towards his, the body of his, his gospel. And it, it's all about painting for us the significance and wonder of Jesus Christ. And so there's three points, and really there's three testimonies of Jesus' significance and wonder for us. And once again, as we're approaching this new year, maybe not to reach something, but to rest in who he is a little more deeply. And so we're going to look in this passage, the testimonies of the law, the testimony of Simeon, and the testimony of Anna. So let's read it, keeping that in mind. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flowers fade and this word endures forever. Let's pray this prayer of illumination together. Blessed Lord, which hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ to digest, that's a good word, to digest these words. So the testimony of the law, first point, verses 21 and 24. Uh, So the verses show Mary and Joseph as a faithful uh, Israelite couple. They're, They're not unique or different, but they're an ordinary faithful couple. The idea is that there's others. And they obediently fulfill the law on behalf of their firstborn son, And he appears to be just an ordinary little baby, and yet we know uh, that he's unique, he's different. So there's there's three laws that come to bear on on this little vignette. So the first thing we see them do is that they have him circumcised on the eighth day. And you remember all the way back in Genesis, God had commanded Abraham to institute the sacrament of circumcision for little boys on the eighth day. And it symbolized their membership in the covenant, but not just in some kind of national external way, like some badge that we just belong to this people. Rather, it symbolized and sealed spiritual realities spiritual realities that God, by his grace, would bring to bear upon true members of his covenant people. So as you look through the Old Testament, there's all kind of these spiritual truths that are signified and sealed by uh, circumcision. And the most obvious is just this cutting away of sin that it symbolized. But along with that, a new heart. And also righteousness. It symbolized a righteousness given And so we look at this and Jesus, we know who Jesus is. He appears to be an ordinary baby, but we know he's distinct. And we ask, why does Jesus have to receive this sign and seal? I mean, he's the God-man. He's the true son of the Father. He had a new heart at conception, like it really did. He, He didn't have any sin to be cut away. 
He's perfectly righteous. So why did he receive a sacrament which points to these spiritualities as if he didn't have them already? And see, he does it already at this moment, eight days into his humiliation, he does so to represent us. That even now, Jesus is assuming our place. He's assuming our guilt. He's promising to be our righteousness. Even now, he's entering into that. He has to be like us under the law, but unlike us, he fulfills the law. And so circumcision, we see in the old covenant, really point forward to him. It pointed forward to one who would cut away sin or be cut away for our sin, who would be our righteousness, who would be able to grant us a new heart. Notice also at the circumcision, he's named, and God was adamant to both Mary and Joseph, naming Jesus. And Jesus comes from the Hebrew meeting, Yahweh saves. And so the idea here is that Yahweh saves us from our sins through this baby, who alone is capable of fulfilling everything circumcision signified and sealed right here. You got him. And the second law that Mary and Joseph fulfill right here is uh, Mary fulfills the law's requirement for purification. And so Leviticus 12, God said that a woman who gave birth to a boy would be unclean for 40 days. It would be 66 for a little girl. But right here we have little boy, 40 days. So this is after 40 days. So God instituted this law, probably had some sort of medical benefit to it as well. But the main reason was to symbolize that babies come into the world fallen, as cute as they are, with a sin nature and impure and guilty. And so like our Westminster Shorter Catechism says, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Like did all of us fall when Adam fell? So the answer being the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So all those he represented who came in the ordinary way fell in Adam. And so to imprint this truth, there's all sorts of manners God did that, but to imprint it on the hearts of parents with a new baby, a new baby boy or baby girl. After 40 days for the boy, 66 for the girl, the, the parents would have to bring a sacrifice to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting for the mother's and the child's purification. And so in verse 22, it says their purification. So she had to bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And it's a great study to go into the offerings, but in essence, those sacrifices mean that man is impure and guilty and that he needs his sins covered to be in fellowship with God. So right then, 40 days in. So then the question again for us is, why does Mary have to provide such a sacrifice for Jesus's birth? I mean, he's unique and different. He does not come by ordinary generation. He's outside of that chain of sin. He's conceived supernaturally by the movement of the Holy Spirit as 
The Holy Spirit created Adam from the dust of the earth. He creates Jesus from, from Mary. And again, we see that Jesus represents us even here. He begins to take to himself our impurity. He's going to be the true burnt offering. He's going to be the true sin offering. To be that, he has to be blameless. But even now, he's entering into that place for us. And notice one of the thing about that is that Mary and Joseph don't bring a lamb. They bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. And God's just mercy, he said that if you couldn't afford a lamb for the burnt offering, you can bring another pigeon or turtle dove. So we see this just common, ordinary, humble peasant family that Jesus is born into. They don't have the money for a lamb, but only for another pigeon. It just accentuates even more the heights to which Jesus has come from and the depths to which he goes for us in his humiliation. He's just a poor man. He's just a poor baby, nondescript, nothing to attract us to him. Just one more peasant baby that brings a poor man's offering. Well, third, the third law that we find here that is a picture to Jesus' significance is that in verse 22, Mary and Joseph present Jesus to the Lord at the temple, the presentation. So verse 23 says, why? It says, why is every male that first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord? And this is a quote from Exodus 13. And you remember in our series on Exodus that, you know, it's, it's when the Passover lamb and all that Israel is still in Egypt. God impresses upon his covenant people that it wasn't just the firstborn of the Egyptians that deserved to die. It was also the firstborn of the Israelites that deserved to die. That the Israelites aren't any better, really, than the Egyptians. That they're all guilty sinners before God. They can't think that they are some elite group of people inherently better. They're not. The difference is that the Israelites took refuge in their homes underneath the blood of the lamb so that the destroying angel passed over them. But to reinforce this even more to each particular Israelite family, he instituted this redemption of the firstborn. And so in essence, God was saying to each family, all your firstborn sons are holy, set apart to me. They signify to you that your whole family is deserving of judgment. The firstborn represents the family. But you may redeem them with a lamb, or later he'd say with five shekels of silver. And this is going to teach you that you must be bought back at great cost from slavery to sin. So you've got this cherished baby boy that's going to represent the family for the next generation. You say we all deserve judgment, and he's got to be bought back from it. But why does Jesus need to be presented? Why him? He's not a sinner. Again, he represents us. He's presented in our place. He already begins to accept the guilt of our sin so that he, he can become our redeemer. And that small price for redemption in the Old Testament pointed forward to the infinite cost he'd pay for our redemption at the cross when he offers himself up, presents himself before God's wrath on our behalf. Even now, we have these pictures of what he's going to do, the significance of wonder of Jesus from the law. But then we also have the testimony of Simeon. 
We're just magnifying Jesus' importance for us. So right as Mary and Joseph enter the temple precincts, and so they're either in the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women, this old man approaches them out of nowhere. A man named Simeon. He's described as righteous and devout. He's this example of Old Testament piety like Mary is as a young girl of 15 or like Elizabeth, an older lady, or Anna, a very old lady that we're about to see. Just examples of ordinary piety, which is so uplifting, really. And notice also the emphasis in our text on the Holy Spirit. Three times in Luke, the Holy Spirit is a big emphasis. And so we see the Holy Spirit is, is upon Simeon. He's like a prophet, but the Holy Spirit abides with him. And the Holy Spirit reveals to him that he won't die until he's seen the Lord's Christ, a unique revelation to him. And then at that moment, the Holy Spirit guides him into the temple at just the right time in order to see Jesus and meet Mary and Joseph. And so if we go back to Jesus' conception when the Holy Spirit comes upon and overshadows Mary, we see the same Spirit who fashioned Jesus in Mary's womb also prepares people to testify to Jesus. He's, he's, moving, he's, he's moving in all areas, just like we expect. He's moving in our body as a, as a church family. So, so Simeon lived all his life, he's an old man now, during very dark days. It's difficult times for Israel, and yet we see that his mindset isn't fixed on the difficulty around him, the discouragement around him, even though it's tough. But what his mind is focused on is the consolation of Israel, and that fills his thoughts. It uplifts his heart. And so this idea of the consolation of Israel is really a phrase that refers to the time of Messiah. It comes out of mainly probably Isaiah, passages that speak of comfort related to Messiah, like Isaiah 40, for example. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Like comfort's coming. It comes with the Messiah who's gonna forgive our sins. So Simeon and the faithful, in the midst of all the difficulty around them, longed for this true consolation, the forgiveness of sins through the Messiah. You, know, you and I enter a new year knowing that we're found right in the consolation of Israel. The comfort of God through Messiah. So Simeon takes the baby in his arms, he blesses him, and he says those beautiful lines, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So one commentator says, Simeon, you know, we can imagine him taking Jesus in his arms, the picture of the messianic hope for Israel and the world arriving. Like the church ended up calling Simeon Theotokos, which means God receiver, like he receives God into his arms. And so as he takes Jesus into his arms, he utters those poetic lines that we call the nunc dimittis. 
And it comes from the Latin meaning now departure. It's the fourth of the birth narrative hymns. So we ask, why does Luke like use the space for all these hymns in the birth narratives? There's four of them, maybe five if Elizabeth is considered a hymn. And it just teaches us that the gospel isn't just something to be reported on. It's not just bare facts. It's something that stirs our hearts. We celebrate and praise God for it. It warms our affections. And Luke wants to drive that home for us. So Simeon uses the word for Lord, Lord. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He uses a a unique word there that means master of the house. And so the, the image of Simeon is that God is the master of his house and he's assigned his servant Simeon with a task. And that task was to stand as an attentive watchman, this vigilant sentinel on lookout on behalf of the family through the long dark night for the arrival of some very important significant person that was gonna help them, bring light to them. And so now Simeon sees this person and so he asks his master to release him from his assignment. Like I discharged my role for you. I really like that image, you know, we, not just Simeon, we, God is the master of the house that we belong to, and at the start of a new year, he's assigned to us uniquely roles and tasks within his family. And so Simeon sees the baby Jesus outwardly like any other baby from humble parents, and he says, he looks at Jesus, he takes him, bless him, and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding a little baby in his arms, and talking about God's salvation. And it's so strong because it shows that this little baby is at the heart and center of God's whole project for salvation that spanned since the fall of man untold amounts of promises and preparations and kings and dramatic events. And yet, this baby is the answer to the human predicament. He's not just a route towards God's salvation. He's it incarnate. Everything pointed to him. He both defines our problem and also deals with it. We want to know what our fundamental problem is. We see that God sent his beloved son to deal with it. And so Simeon adds that God prepared him in the presence of all peoples. And so this is Luke's first indicator of universalism, that God's focus has never been just Israel, but has always been all the peoples. In fact, all the nations were supposed to look at Israel and observe how God was preparing through them for their salvation. Well, Jesus is God's light. He prepared him to be a light. And so Jesus breaks into the darkness of our ignorance and misery and guilt. And so he's described as a light for revelation to the Gentiles. They're confused, they're darkened. They haven't had a clear understanding of who God is and who they are and what salvation entails. Jesus is revelation to them. Light clarifies the darkness. But he's also light in the sense of glory, And he's glory for the people of Israel. Why is he their glory? Except that it's through them that the answer to the world's problems has come. Salvation for the world's anguish comes through them. It's to their glory that they've been the incubator for the Messiah himself. 
Well, so Mary and Joseph start marveling at those words. This man out of nowhere takes their baby and utters these words over him. And then Simeon looks at Mary, he blesses her, and he says this, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And this this statement is crucial too for understanding of Jesus' importance. There's a lot of stuff in here, but Simeon is saying, to Mary, you know, the falling and rising, like you can't get around him. You can't bypass him. You can't stay neutral towards him. You can't assimilate him into a well-balanced life. You can't fit him into a set of deities you already have an allegiance to. You're either gonna trip and fall over him or you're gonna build your life on him and rise. He's also saying Jesus' peace isn't just sentimentality. He's not just making you feel better. A true peacemaker won't gloss over your problems, but he'll deal with them. Keller says it this way, if you have a tumor, a surgeon will have to cut you open and take it out. If you're depressed, a therapist will have to push you to confront some things you don't wanna confront. In the same way Jesus exposes how deeply flawed and helpless we are, he does that in order to really heal us. And so Simeon goes on to say that he's gonna be a sign that's gonna be opposed. He's a sign because Jesus is the one that shows us what the Father's like. That Jesus is the one that shows us what we need but he's going to be opposed. And the reason he's opposed ultimately is fallen man has an intense desire to justify himself. We want to do it on our own. We don't like people telling us we're wrong. We don't got it right. We can't save ourselves. That's really what got Jesus crucified. The Jews couldn't handle that, the the leaders among the Jews. But really that reflects our own hearts. We, We don't We lash out against those who point out how we're flawed. So Simeon prophesies to Mary the cross. He says, Mary, a sword is gonna pierce your own soul too. You're gonna suffer great sorrow. This baby that you love, he's gonna suffer. And really Jesus goes to the cross to suffer for the root of our sin, being our pride. But when we look at this, As he does this, he takes the sword of God's judgment. See, a sword pierces her heart, but really in a deeper way, he's taking God's sword. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a seraphim, the cherubim that guarded access to the tree of life with a flaming sword. That all mankind is underneath the sword of God's judgment. Jesus takes that sword on our behalf. But we look at Mary too and put ourselves in her shoes. Is there a sense in which a sword pierces our heart too? In one sense, you and I, when we enter fellowship with Christ, we enter his pathway, and the pride of our world is gonna lash out against us. There's gonna be a sword that pierces our heart. But in addition to that, we have to look at our own hearts and say, there's an internal war that goes on. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we know his peace, but also we enter a war. It's a fight. A sword pierces your heart. Heart. John Newton said in a letter to a friend of his, he was struggling with assurance of salvation. He says, for my own part, I believe the most holy people feel the most evil. 
Indeed, when faith is strong and an exercise, sin will not much break out to the observation of others, but it cuts them out work enough within. Don't you know that to be true? We might be able to curb our, our sin before others, but we know what goes on in our hearts. A sword pierces our hearts because we're at war. But finally, what Simeon says to Mary, he goes, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And so Jesus comes to uncover hearts. He exposes us what is our true bent, our true bias. Is it gonna be to self or is it gonna be to God? And so we look at this new year. Will we own our need? Will we bend our need in gratitude and reverence to Jesus? Will we feel with thankfulness for him? Or will we stand on our own sufficiency and ability and ultimately reject him? He, he reveals the nature of the heart. Well, finally, the testimony of Anna. And she's great too. The, this, Anna's a prophetess. And she walks up and she hears Simeon's words and she's really old. She was married for seven years, but then either she's 84 now or she's been a widow for 84 years. And she's a member of the tribe of Asher, which is wonderful because the 10 tribes, you remember, back in 587 were carried into captivity and people talk about the lost tribes of Israel. But this is one of the supposed lost tribes in that she can trace her lineage there. Shows that they weren't entirely lost. They kept their purity and their faithfulness. So Anna is also an example of Old Testament piety. And she described as always being in the temple, which could mean that she had a room there, but probably means that she was just always at worship, public and private, fellowship gatherings. She chose a life as a widow in single-minded service to God, and that was her heart's desire. She described as worshiping God with fasting and prayer night and day. And we have to say that humanly speaking, Jesus comes because of the prayers of people like Anna. Just like we say, humanly speaking, Jesus extends his redeeming work in our world and in our hearts through the prayers of such people. And so it's real important to start this year. You know, it doesn't hit the New Year's resolutions to say, I wanna be more prayerful this year. And we really have a good opportunity next Sunday to gather as a people in prayer and commit our year to God. And so hearing Simeon's words, Anna testifies about Jesus too. She gives thanks to God. What must that have felt like after years of praying to be able to see the object of her prayers? And she speaks to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And that's another word for Messiah's coming, the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem. It's another way of talking about that God is buying us back. And she makes it a habit. From this point on, she's talking to people about the coming of Christ. And so I like Anna and Simeon in the sense that things were hard, there were dark days, and yet their minds were fixated on on the coming of God's mercy and grace. And so this idea of redemption also comes out of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a redeemer who's gonna forgive us of our sins. Or ultimately it goes back to the Exodus that just as God redeemed Israel from bondage, even though at the cross, he redeems us from our worst slavery being sin. We can say that even more clearly than Anna can say it. We know the cross and the resurrection. We approach this new year like her, fasting and praying and worshiping God with our minds set on the redemption of Jerusalem because we know that one day Jesus is gonna return. 
He's going to return in person and gather his inheritance and his people in the new heavens and new earth. We fast and pray towards this. We rejoice in the midst of our difficulty and darkness that we're found here. And so we look at Simeon and Anna and their Christ-centeredness. They're resting and relying upon the Redeemer and it shapes their lives. So as we look at this new year, what are we expecting? What about this coming year for us? What are we, might we cherish his sufficiency more? Might we set ourselves to wrapping our lives more around him? The question I think is a good one is, what might that mean for you this year? How might you rest more plainly in Jesus's sufficiency and work for you? To, To let that guilt go, that shame go, to cultivate joy and gladness in the midst of dark times, to know that you belong to the redemption of Jerusalem, to interact with others on that that basis. How do you need to rely on Jesus in a new way this year? And how might you devote yourself to his glory and the eternal good of others in a new way this year? What's God prompting you by his spirit to do? God's people said, amen.